Jeremiah chapter 37. Jeremiah would be a Houston Texans fan, I'm sure. We're gonna look at that chapter this morning, verses one through 21, so open your Bible or navigate on your device there. The topic we'll find there, Zedekiah secretly visits Jeremiah in a makeshift dungeon to discuss the fate of Jerusalem. The title of our message, Dungeons and Dramatics. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, your servant Jeremiah, faithful and true. This week we see him, Lord, in a very difficult situation, one of the most difficult situations he's faced thus far, both spiritually and emotionally as well as physically. At first, Lord, it doesn't look like we can relate to that at all, but really we can. And your spirit is here to bring that to our hearts so that we see you in the text, we see ourselves in the text, and we understand, Lord, your ministry to us as we have ears to hear what the Spirit says to us as your church. Bless, anoint, refresh, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Jonathan Edwards is a former British Olympic champion in the triple jump. Due to his strong Christian beliefs during his athletic career, he initially refused to compete on Sundays, sort of a modern-day Eric Little. Following his retirement as an athlete, Edwards worked as a sports commentator and presenter for BBC Television. He also presented episodes of the BBC Christian worship program, Songs of Praise, until he renounced his faith in 2007. I lost my faith when I retired, he was quoted as saying. Retirement is very traumatic. You stop doing what you love, what you are very good at, the thing that has given you your identity. You have to start again. At a time when your contemporaries are nearing the peak of their professional lives, you are over the hill. How do you prepare for life after being an athlete? You and I hear that and say, it's time to quit whining and put on your big boy pants. (laughs) That's to me a high class problem. How do I live after I've been a world-class athlete? However, the truth is, not uncommon for a person to encounter a life-changing event that puts their confidence in God and his word to the test. Confidence in God's word was put to the test when the Babylonian troops besieging Jerusalem suddenly retreated. It seemed contrary to everything Jeremiah had prophesied for decades. And then Jeremiah was accused of trying to defect to the Babylonians and he was beaten and incarcerated in a makeshift dungeon for quite a while. Some event or some evil may come upon you personally or upon those you love. However minor it might seem to others, it could be major to you. God's word, perhaps a promise he's made you, will seem almost voided. How will you respond? I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, Don't let events shake your confidence in God's word. And number two, don't let evils shake your confidence in God's word. Let's take a look at events in verses one through 10. Babylon's troops were besieging Jerusalem for the third time, and this time it looked like they were gonna destroy the city and its temple. It was exactly as Jeremiah had prophesied. Then something dramatic happened that seemed to contradict God's word through Jeremiah. Hearing of an Egyptian threat behind them, the Babylonians suddenly broke off their siege and withdrew their troops. What was happening? Had God repented of his prophesied judgment? 
Let's see how it all played out and how Jeremiah, whose prophecies suddenly seemed suspicious, responded. Verse one and two. Now King Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, reigned instead of Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made king in the land of Judah. But neither he nor his servants nor the people of the land gave heed to the words of the Lord, which he spoke by the prophet Jeremiah. Zedekiah had been appointed by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon to govern Judah. Judah was a vassal state. It was subservient to Babylon and uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had personally handpicked Zedekiah to rule over it for him. Historians tell us that Zedekiah made an alliance with Egypt in order to get out from under the yoke of Babylon. It was his betrayal of Nebuchadnezzar that incited this third invasion, this third attack. Meanwhile, Jeremiah had been telling the kings of Judah to submit to Nebuchadnezzar and that they would be subject for Babylon for at least the next 70 years. It was the word of the Lord and Jeremiah had not wavered from it at all. With the armies upon them, it seemed to confirm the truth of his prophecies. And so verse three, Zedekiah the king sent Heukal the son of Shelemiah and Zephaniah the son of Maaseiah, the priest, to the prophet Jeremiah saying, Pray now to the Lord our God for us. Now Jeremiah was coming and going among the people, for they had not yet put him in prison. Then Pharaoh's army came up from Egypt, and when the Chaldeans who were besieging Jerusalem heard news of them, they departed from Jerusalem. Then the word of the Lord came to the prophet Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Thus you shall say to the king of Judah who sent you to me to inquire of me, behold, Pharaoh's army which has come up to help you will return to Egypt to their own land. And the Chaldeans shall come back and fight against this city, take it and burn it with fire. Now if I'm reading this correctly, the Babylonians withdrew and Zedekiah sent to ask Jeremiah if in fact God had repented of what he had been prophesying for some years and was going to spare Jerusalem from judgment. Jeremiah insisted that the withdrawal precipitated by Egypt was merely a forestalling of the inevitable fall of the city. Let's think of this from Jeremiah's point of view. Powerful circumstantial evidence seemed to prove your prophecies were wrong. Instead of the Babylonians breaching the walls and burning the city, they had withdrawn. So much so, as we'll see in a moment, that anyone who wanted could leave Jerusalem and travel freely in the surrounding regions and towns. Add to that a couple of biblical facts that everyone knew. First, Some hundred years or so earlier, God had repented of his judgment when Hezekiah was king and instead sent an angel into the camp of the besieging Assyrian army, killing 185,000 Assyrian soldiers overnight. Second, Jonah had once announced doom upon Nineveh only to see God repent and spare them. Was something like this happening again? Well, sadly, no, because unlike Hezekiah and the Ninevites, the citizens of Judah did not and they would not repent. We just read in verse two, they gave no heed at all 
to the word of God. The trigger in those other two events was Hezekiah's humility in going before the Lord and repenting for the sins of the people and the citizens of Nineveh turning to God in repentance. And then God relented of the judgment that he had proclaimed in response to their heart condition. That was not happening in Judah. Still, if you were Jeremiah, this could be disheartening to say the least. Everything pointed to you being wrong about the most important thing that you'd ever said. It was very challenging as an event in his life, uh, life, to say the least. Now, all of us have events. Some of them are life-changing or just life-challenging. Circumstantial evidence can point to a failure in the word of God or at least a promise that now seems highly unlikely to be kept. We say all things are working together for the good, but there can be huge periods of time when we don't see the good. We can't even imagine how it would ever come. We all know people who had an event that shook them up so much that they turned to the Lord. You might also know Christians, I know I do, who had an event that shook them up so much they became embittered with the Lord. It's more common than we'd like to admit, but it happens. They're serving the Lord, they're loving the Lord, then something happens, it might seem major, it might seem minor, and all of a sudden they, they don't renounce their faith like Jonathan Edwards did perhaps, but they, they draw back, they pull away. They start living a more self-centered, selfish lifestyle because they can't really reconcile what has happened with the word of God or the promises of God as they have understood them. What did Jeremiah do? That's the important thing for us because he's our example. Verse nine, thus says the Lord, do not deceive yourself saying the Chaldeans will surely depart from us for they will not depart. For though you had defeated the whole army of the Chaldeans who fight against you and there remained only wounded men among them, they would rise up every man in his tent and burn the city with fire. Jeremiah not only remained confident in God's already revealed word, he emphasized it all the more. In face of contrary circumstantial evidence, he made the bold assertion that God's word could not possibly fail. The Chaldeans had withdrawn, but they would return, and even if the Jews were to somehow defeat them in battle after they returned, a handful of their wounded would still get up in the morning and burn, Israel, burn Judah and Jerusalem to the ground. Now, this wasn't blind faith. As we already pointed out, Jeremiah knew that God hadn't repented of the coming judgment because the Jews had refused to repent. Jeremiah's confidence was therefore based upon both the word of God and what he knew of the character and nature of God. He knew that God could never contradict himself Though he could conceivably turn away his judgment, it could only be in response to a genuine national repentance that had not occurred. Now in a court of law, circumstantial evidence can be very powerful. Much of the evidence against convicted American bomber Timothy McVeigh was circumstantial. Speaking about McVeigh's trial, University of Michigan law professor Robert Precht said, circumstantial evidence can be and often is much more powerful than direct evidence. Being kind of a, uh, a legal idiot, 
I always thought, oh, that, you know, you hear on TV, oh, they only have circumstantial evidence. And you think, oh, well, then, you know, that guy's going to get off. And uh, actually, in court, circumstantial evidence is a very powerful form of evidence. The 2004 murder trial of Scott Peterson was another high-profile conviction based heavily on circumstantial evidence alone. But you can throw all of that out when it comes to spiritual matters. Circumstantial evidence will get you in trouble every time. We could take almost any Old Testament character, but let's concentrate on Abraham because he's the first one that came to mind. God's promises to Abraham, all of them were wrapped up in he and Sarah having a son. Everything depended upon them having a son and having descendants through that son. Abraham himself and Sarah herself couldn't figure out how God was going to fulfill his promise. Because the circumstantial evidence was that he could not. They were past childbearing age. They didn't believe it so much so that they went ahead and let Abraham have a child through Hagar, his maidservant, thinking that would be the child of promise. says, God said, no, you, <laughs> quit looking at the circumstances. You're going to have a son. And then, just as God had promised, they had a son, Isaac. Fast forward 33 years or so. And God says, I want you to sacrifice your son, your only son, Isaac, on a mountain where I will show you. And Abraham does. And then you're thinking, now, wait a minute now. He's going to kill his son. That's going to kill the promises of God. How are the promises that God made to Abraham going to come true? Promises that affect the entire human race down to the end of history. Circumstantial evidence alone would teach you that this is never going to work out let alone for the good to them that love the Lord and are called according to his purposes, and yet God did work it out in a miraculous way. You could say the same thing about Moses. You could say the same thing about David. David on the run, going from cave to cave. God had told him that he would be king. It seemed like he was gonna die every other day and that there was no way out. And yet the Lord worked that out. That's the kind of thing we're talking about. If you and I start looking at our circumstances, there are going to be events in our lives that are challenging and changing and we are going to draw back from believing in God because of the circumstantial evidence. And you know, God is doing the same things today that he always did, whether you're Moses or Abraham or David or whether you're you and I, uh, there are challenges and changes that affect us that we need to keep our eyes on the Lord. Circumstantial evidence was always against God fulfilling his promises to his people, but he did it and he is still doing it today. Beware of allowing circumstantial evidence to challenge what God has said and who God is. His revelation and especially his promises to you are all true and amen despite what you may be experiencing at every, any given point along your journey homeward to heaven. Now as we move on in verses 11 through 21, don't let evils shake your confidence in God's word. A false accusation led to a great evil being done against Jeremiah. In verse 11, we read, and it happened when the army of the Chaldeans left the siege of Jerusalem for fear of Pharaoh's army, that Jeremiah went out of Jerusalem to go into the land of Benjamin to claim his property there among the people. And when he was in the gate of Benjamin, a captain of the guard was there whose name was Erijah, the son of Shelemiah, the son of Hananiah. And he sees Jeremiah the prophet saying, you are defecting to the Chaldeans. 
Then Jeremiah said, false, I am not defecting to the Chaldeans. But he did not listen to him. So Arijah seized Jeremiah and brought him to the princes. Jeremiah was a loyal patriot. He loved his country and his people. To be accused of defecting was a terrible and evil thing. Verse 15, therefore the princes were angry with Jeremiah and they struck him and put him in prison in the house of Jonathan the scribe for they had made that the prison. Struck him probably means he was flogged, a very, very serious and painful legal beating, all of this without regard for his testimony or any hearing or trial. He was arrested, accused, beaten, thrown into a makeshift dungeon. There were no prisons in Jerusalem, so they used a portion of the house of Jonathan to hold Jeremiah. The words translated indicate it was an underground cistern, a dark, dank, empty water reservoir underneath this guy's house. Dinner must have been fun at Jonathan's house for a while as there were noise. Do you hear something? What's that? Who's that prophet in my basement? You know, that kind of a thing, but... They uh, didn't really have, so Jeremiah was just down there suffering, uh, wounded, uh, and emotionally drained as well, I'm sure. Life isn't fair, and all of us will experience evil in our lifetimes. It might be on a large scale, like Jeremiah's beating and incarceration. It might be something most people would consider petty. But either way, it can cause you to lose your confidence in God's word. Much of the philosophy I studied at the University of California, Riverside, was the modern response to the two world wars fought in the 20th century. Intellectuals and academics, as well as average Joes and Janes, could not reconcile how there could be an omnipotent and loving God in face of the horrors of those conflicts. They rejected the notion of God altogether on account of the evils that were so evident. And so um, if you wonder where some of this modern philosophy comes from that your kids are studying in school, it comes out of this overreaction or this reaction, especially after World War II. And obviously the two world wars, horrible, terrible events. Uh, I mean, just, you know, Anything you want to look at in any of those wars were just shattering to people. And intellectuals and academics, they started to to question the notion that there could even be a God or if there was a God, uh, it didn't matter anymore. That's actually, at a time, was the more prevalent idea. A lot of people say, well, they don't believe in God. Some of these guys, they, they do believe that there might be a God, and there probably is a God who created all things, but he's clearly to them not involved in the universe anymore, or else how could these things happen? And so they reject the notion of God or his involvement in his creation altogether on account of the presence of evil. Well, what did Jeremiah do? When Jeremiah entered, verse 16, the dungeon and cells, and Jeremiah had remained there many days, then Zedekiah the king sent and took him out. The king asked him secretly in his house and said, is there any word from the Lord? And Jeremiah said, there is. And then he said, you shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon. Jeremiah went right on boldly proclaiming the very same word of God he had been delivering all along. The presence of evil, even evil that was done against him, evil that was allowed by God, permitted by God to touch him, 
It did not dissuade him from trusting God's word. Now, we've already talked a lot in previous studies about the theological issue of evil with regard to the omnipotence and love of God. Today, I will only say that it really does you no good to remove God from the discussion. It might be hard for some people to come to grips with why or how the omnipotent, all-loving God allows evil. But if you reject him, the only alternative is a godless hopelessness. And so it doesn't help you to reject God. I'd rather struggle with not quite understanding everything that's in the mind and heart of God in terms of, of, of why and how he allows and permits evil. And there are good, solid answers to that or perspectives on that. But if I say, well, I just can't hang with an all-loving, all-powerful God allowing evil at all, then I'm left absolutely all by myself on my own with no answers. And some honest philosophers would agree with that. And they would say that it is a valid solution to the human problem to just go ahead and kill yourself because you were nothing before, you'll be nothing again, and there's no reason to live. Because life, it's not just hopeless because there's evil, it's just hopeless, period. And so getting rid of God doesn't help you. It puts you in a whole nother plane of thought that's even worse. Those who reject God because of the presence of evil have really adopted a philosophy started by the devil. When Satan appeared in heaven before God in the opening chapters of the book of Job, he insisted that if anything evil befell Job, he would renounce God and cease from worshiping him. And so the devil is the one who came up with the problem of evil. Interesting because he was intimately involved with bringing it into the universe. But he's the one that says, if God is so loving, if he is so powerful, how can evil exist? And so to me, the real Satanism isn't, you know, we think on Halloween people stealing your cat and, you know, doing whatever weird stuff they do. It's this personal philosophy that there is no God if he can allow anything bad to happen and you become your own God. You become your own universe. God is God in what seems like happenstance we sing. He is God in every circumstance. Don't allow Satan to argue otherwise. Instead, be like Jeremiah and go even deeper into God's word. It's the better alternative. Verse 18, moreover, Jeremiah said to King Zedekiah, what offense have I committed against you, against your servants or against this people that you have put me in prison? Where now are your prophets who prophesied to you saying, the king of Babylon will not come against you or against this land? There are always going to be other voices that challenge God's word. They seem true, but only for a moment and even then only in a very shallow and self-serving way. God's word stands forever. And so we have the word of God we're standing on the word of God and then, you know, from some realm, whether it's the religious realm or the intellectual realm, something will come that mounts a challenge to God's word. Uh, over the years, there have been so many of these things, the so-called archaeological discoveries or conspiracy theories, you know, where, hey, we found this and, and if this is true, it proves that the Bible is completely false and was written at a much later date and, you know, it's all just the musings of men and everybody gets all Twitter-pated about it for a while, you know, oh, what's gonna happen? It's shattering my faith. And then they find out that it's something fake itself. 
that it it doesn't really exist you know and and these guys are just making it up because they hate christianity and the word of god stands or you know the Word of God will talk about cities like Sodom and Gomorrah and they'll say, oh, those cities never existed. Then they find those cities but they refuse to call them Sodom and Gomorrah because then they'd have to admit that the Bible was accurate. So they've got these cities now that are in the exact right location that fit the profile at the exact right period of history that were destroyed by fire and they say, they're a lot like Sodom and Gomorrah in the Bible but we know that can't be because the Bible's not true. And so there's always some challenge. Every religion challenges the Bible. They go beyond the Bible. They add to the Bible. And, and, but if you think about it, even for five minutes, I mean, no one would come up with the idea, no one would come up with the idea that God would become a man and that he would take your place and die in your place and rise from the dead and come again. I mean, that's an amazing thing because it requires a humility and a self-sacrifice that's not really a part of who we are by nature. We invent religions where God, or where men suddenly become gods and take over planets somewhere and propagate and have all kinds of children, you know, and that kind of, that's the kind of thing that happens. And, and, and sometimes you just need to look at things and see, that's ridiculous. That's stupid. I don't care how many millions of people believe that. It's just stupid. It's based on stupidity. It can easily be proven wrong, even though it's politically incorrect to say that. And then we always fall back on the word of God, which is always true and always proves itself. Always voices to challenge God's word. In Jeremiah's day, it was false prophets who said they spoke for the Lord. Jeremiah kept on point And even though circumstantial evidence was totally against him, he said, well, I know the word of God and I know God. And unless you repent, God will not relent of this judgment no matter what. And so I guess if that army has retreated, they're coming back. And I guess if you defeat them, one or two of them wounded will crawl into town and burn this city to the ground because the word of God cannot fail. And we need to have that kind of confidence in our walk with the Lord because some event is going to happen, some evil is gonna happen, maybe to us, maybe to somebody we love, maybe just on the world stage and it's going to start to undercut our confidence in the word of God if we're not careful. Verse 20, Jeremiah says, therefore please hear now, O my Lord the King, please let my petition be accepted before you. And do not make me return to the house of Jonathan the scribe, lest I die there. Then Zedekiah the king commanded that they should commit Jeremiah to the court of the prison and that they should give him a daily piece of bread from the Baker Street until all the bread in the city was gone. Thus Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison. Now, yes, he remained a prisoner, but really everybody in the city was a prisoner when the Babylonians returned. Nobody could leave. And bread was a delicacy during this phase of the uh, you know, battle. Uh, so for him to get a daily portion of bread was uh, really pretty good. It's really a way of reminding us that believer and non-believer, we're all in this together. And so, you know, Jeremiah, he had the word of God, he stood upon it, but he was still part and parcel of the greater context of the world of suffering and evil and everybody was kind of in that boat, as we would say. 
But the difference is you and I have words of eternal life. We have the bread of life and we share that bread of life with others who will listen. And that's why time is too short for us to let events or evils in our lives turn us aside from the narrow road we are on that leads to eternal life. We don't have time to be stopped on that narrow path and to have our own problems, as it were, with God, with accusing God or wondering about God. Because there are too many other people that um, need to hear the gospel, that need to understand that the Lord is coming. We, there are too many hopeless sinners who need us to remain confident in God's word and when life challenges us to go even deeper in our confidence that all things really will work together for good to those who love the Lord and they're the called according to his commandments. We just don't know now how that's gonna work out. You know that verse in Romans eight twenty eight. it doesn't promise us that all things are gonna work together tomorrow or a week from now or a year from now or a decade from now or a lifetime from now. And when we look at, I know some of you are going through things right now and will go through things where you, if you were really honest, you would say, I'm looking at what God has told me and what God has promised me personally even from his word and I'm thinking about the nature and character of God but the evidence is against all of that. It is completely stacked against it. Everything I see and everything that is going on is completely contrary to what God has said. It's, it's like the Babylonian army withdrawing and you think, what's up with that? Where did I go wrong? What is God trying to do? Uh, and that's the moment when we have to decide, is God true and every man a liar? Am I going to stand on the word of God when I don't see how it's going to work out? And, and what encourages me or what can encourage me is to look and see that that happened to every Bible character that you can imagine. It's kind of a standard thing that goes on. There's always a moment at least when you think, how is this going to work out? I gave Abraham, David as examples, but you could pick almost any of the heroes of the faith and there came a moment at which all the promises of God seemed to have come to a screeching halt in their lives. Moses, when he came against the Red Sea with a million Jews clamoring and the army of the Egyptians on them, about ready to destroy them, I mean, circumstantially, you're at the end of God's promises. And the people thought so. They thought, what are we doing out here? What's gonna happen? We're gonna be slaughtered by the Egyptians. Who would have imagined that the staff in Moses' hand as he raised it in glory to God could part the rivers and give them dry ground even to walk across? It's amazing. Now, that happened pretty quickly. There's other Bible characters like Abraham uh, God promises took years and years and years to see fruition and fulfillment. And so when you're in that situation, I know you are or will be, you need to go on trusting God because all things really will work together for good or else he is not God and we know that he is. Let's pray.